Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. All right, in today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're going to be starting in the book of Acts. And Mark tells me this is really going to be such a good lesson that we're going to have to do it and split it in two. And so as we like to do, we like to open up with a word of prayer. Leslie, would you open us, please? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have to search and learn more about your word and to dig more deeply into your will and for our lives, actively intervene in our lives and help us to uh, open our eyes and open our hearts and learn what we can by your grace we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. And welcome, Mark. Oh, thank you. It's uh, great to be back with everyone. I I get so excited about this Acts uh, examination that I can't hardly wait till the next time we're able to uh, get together to uh, go over some more material here. We're looking at Acts from a point of view different from almost any religious group, entity, or organization in America would look at it. We're looking at Acts as the restoration of Israel, as the fulfillment of all of God's faithful promises to his faithless bride, Israel. And uh, it's taking us in some interesting directions here. We saw how Paul assumed the preeminent position as the main character of the book in the middle of chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, we saw how Paul and Barnabas and their entourage... um, traveled about the area of present-day southern Turkey, going into all of the Judean synagogues and proving from the scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. And then they kind of finished their loop and ended back in Antioch in Syria, uh, where they had started on their journey. And so this is where we begin tonight in Acts chapter 15. Now, did we talk uh, earlier about the four P's uh, in the book of Acts? Does that sound familiar to anybody in the studio tonight? Yes, but refresh us, Mark. Uh, Okay, good. We need to refresh our memory. Perugia. I do remember Perugia. That's the fourth. uh, No, prayer's not one of them, but I mean, prayer's important. We could make that the fifth one if we wanted to. But... uh, (laughs) What what we see in the book of Acts and repeated in every letter in the New Testament except for the letter to Philemon 
are the four P's, power, the miraculous gift of signs and wonders that was given to confirm the word that the disciples preached. So we have power and then preaching, and then we have persecution. But it's not the persecution that most churches in America have emphasized or taught about. In fact, I asked this at our, at our local group, just starting into the book of Acts, and nearly everybody said, oh yeah, Roman persecution. But that's not the persecution we have seen thus far in the book of Acts, is it? What type of persecution or what is the source of persecution of the disciples uh, thus far, wherever they've gone? Their fellow Israelites. Absolutely. Judean persecution. It, this is the context of the book of Acts and the context of all of the New Testament is Judean, intense Judean persecution. In fact, one of the uh, members of our local group is a retired uh, preacher, and he is writing a book on Paul's thorn in the flesh, and he is contending that that was not a physical disease or an eye ailment. It was Judean, relentless Judean persecution of Paul's own countrymen who followed him everywhere he went, hounded him mercilessly, would not let him alone, and even went on hunger strikes until they could murder him. I mean, it was, it's absolutely relentless, and this is the theme all through the New Testament. And yet we've been taught to be politically correct, to ignore that, and to substitute Roman persecution for the fact of Judean persecution. So we have power, preaching, persecution, and then parousia, or parousia, I, I never can remember how to pronounce it correctly, which is the, the promise, the promise of an imminent manifestation of Jesus Christ from the spirit realm to which he has retired. He is going to make his presence known, and that's what parousia means, is presence, not coming. It's mistranslated as coming, or second coming, in the King James Bible, but that's not what it meant. It was to manifest his presence from the spirit realm in the affairs of mankind, and it was to wreak vengeance on the persecutors of his saints, which were primarily the Judean people. I mean, Rome helped later on, and, and they suffered as, as well during that same time. But the, the main thrust of the wrath of God was the uh, Judean nation, which was utterly and completely forever uh, wiped off of planet Earth. Not every member of the nation, but the nation as a polity, as a, an entity, as an organization with its with a temple, and the basic means to comply with the law of Moses, that was forever eliminated off of the planet just shortly after the events in the book of Acts end. So th these are the themes that we've seen, the four Ps so far. And now in chapter 15 here, we're going to see kind of a new element introduced, which is related to but different than the idea of Judean persecution. And so we'll see what that is shortly. Let's go ahead and begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, please. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, quote, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, unquote. This brought Paul and Barnabas to sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. All right. So these are not Judean persecutors of the church, but these are rather Judean Christians who are teaching that all of these Gentiles, which just by definition is any non-Judean who have believed in Jesus as the Christ, that they must be circumcised, and as we'll see, and also follow the law of Moses, or there's no way for them to be saved. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are, uh, are quite upset by this. Both Paul and Barnabas were not born in Jerusalem, apparently. Uh, Barnabas, I think we're told, came from Cyprus. And Paul, of course, was from Tarsus in far south eastern Turkey uh, today. But they both went to Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas had close family because John Mark's mother lived in Jerusalem. And uh, we're told they were related cousins or something. So Barnabas had close family in Jerusalem. Paul went to school in Jerusalem studying under Gamaliel. So they both had strong ties to Jerusalem. And that may or may not have been part of the reason that uh, they were selected to go up to Jerusalem. Now, which direction is Jerusalem from uh, Antioch in Syria? Just roughly. Well, it's south, but uh, but it must be up in elevation is what they mean, is not is it not? Yes, or? exactly right. So it's a trick question. But Jerusalem was higher than everything around it, but also in the Judean mind, Jerusalem was the center of the earth and uh, and all that. So uh, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, there's a lot of symbolism tied up in this, but uh, yeah, they so they went... They went down, but they went up to Jerusalem. They went down south, but up in elevation to Jerusalem to go to the apostles and the elders about this question of whether these new Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. Chuck? A question for Mark. Mark, you said, I think, that the Judeans were the persecutors of the uh, followers and uh, that, the, that the Judean culture or religion, I wasn't quite sure what you meant, or state, whatever it was, was completely and utterly destroyed uh, and, and was gone from the face of the earth. When you talk about the Judeans, were you not talking about what today the Bible calls Judaism or the Jews? In other words, uh, the Jews would occur in the Bible in the place of the Judeans. And so what it, what, let me ask you then, what is your position on what is Judaism today. Judaism well, uh, was destroyed. What is, Ju- what, what is the Judaism that's practiced today? Yeah, it is known as rabbinic Judaism, and outside of the United States, I would say it's pretty more consistent as what we know as Orthodox Judaism, rabbinic uh, Judaism, and there is kind of a direct link between the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament and uh, 
the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism, which was really a man-made religion that had to be created after the temple was destroyed because it was no longer possible to follow the law of Moses, which required continual offerings for the sins of Israel uh, at the temple in Jerusalem and attendance at the feasts by all the males of Israel three times a year and so on and so forth. So since this has not been possible since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the, uh, uh, some of the surviving Pharisees um, kind of created this religion of rabbinic Judaism, which has come down to us in, in uh, various forms. So a, as a religion, that, there is a connection there. And the moral precepts of the Law of Moses are, are ostensibly taught by Orthodox uh, Judaism. There are branches in America, um, Reform Judaism and uh, Conservative Judaism, and uh, I'm not sure they really believe in the inspiration of even the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, I, I don't think Reform do at all. Conservative probably do. And I'm not an expert on any of these three uh, categories of religion, but they, they are not the same as what we read about in the Hebrew Scriptures or even in the New Testament, because uh, the the religion of national Judea of the first century revolved around the temple and the animal sacrifices, which were necessary to kind of take care of the sins of the people and, and roll them forward. That's not a theologically precise way to describe it, uh, to kind of roll these sins forward until Messiah could come to solve the sin problem of Israel. So anyway, there, you do see some similarities in the two, but they are, they are quite different at their core because of the lack of the temple cult, which was required to follow the law of Moses. Thank you, Mark. Plus, Mark, most people who think that all the Gospels and the New Testament were written before 70 A.D. There's some people that say that Revelations was 95 A.D. after the fall. So all this, these accounts would be under the old system because the temple was still there. Yes, and we are going to see in, here in Acts 15 and through the remainder of the book just how important that was and what most of us have been taught that the the law was done away with at the cross is not biblically accurate. The cross was not the end of the law of Moses, which is a very germane topic to what we have going on here in Acts 15 with these uh, people, which we will learn here are Pharisees who have believed on Jesus Christ, and they are believing that it is necessary for a Gentile to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses in order to be grafted into Israel. So anyway, that, so these are good questions, and I'm eager to uh, to get into them here. All right, uh, let's read three through five here, and then then I'm going to go back and read some background material from the Old Testament. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, 
and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, quote, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, unquote. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Leslie. So, I mean, they didn't have the Internet, obviously. They didn't have television. Uh, they didn't even have Western Union. So the events that we have studied that occurred in Cyprus and southern Turkey and so on with the uh, reception. What what kind of reception in Antioch of Pisidia did the Gentiles give to the gospel of Paul and Barnabas? Does anyone remember? Favorable? They, well, yeah, but, but more than favorable, it, we saw that they announced that all of the promises for the end times of Israel had come to pass. And this meant that it was time for the Gentiles to be welcomed into the kingdom of God as equal partners with Israel, with the physical Israelites or the Judeans as the remnant of Israel. And, of course, some of the Judeans in the synagogue were excited, but a lot of others were not. But the synagogues had all attracted huge numbers of foreigners who wanted to learn about the true God, the God of Israel. And so remember that it said in chapter 13 that the next Saturday, when the synagogue gathered to read the scriptures together, almost the whole town came out to hear Paul and Barnabas. So, so we are talking about an overwhelming reception amongst the foreign nations of the news that they can now be welcomed in to the community of the true God as equal partners with the physical descendants of Jacob. So it's absolutely overwhelming. So this is not just some lukewarm news, you know, of five baptisms or something that, uh, you know, that these guys are carrying as they go through uh, what would be modern-day Lebanon and... uh, Israel, Samaria, which is the area between uh, Jerusalem and Galilee in Palestine. No, this conversion of the Gentiles, this wasn't just five or six people. We're talking about thousands. And this caused great joy uh, to all the brethren. So, again, this isn't something that impacts 10 people or 20 people. This is this question that caused them to journey all the way down to Jerusalem is a, is a huge question. Now, the, the fascinating thing is that we see these, uh, these uh, Pharisees who believed in Jesus, and they are saying that the Gentiles have to be circumcised. Now, was circumcision significant to an Israelite? No. <laughs> Not when you're eight days old. You can't squawk too much. Oh, yeah? A baby sure can. <laughs> well, of course, you know, Tom is... Uh, is uh, yeah, yeah. Reminds me of me or something. Okay. But if we go back to Genesis uh, 17, this is God talking to Abram, who has just had his name changed to Abraham here in Genesis 17 which means father of a multitude. 
or father of nations. I will make you exceeding fruitful, picking up in verse 6, I will make nations out of you and kings shall come out of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. I will give to you and to your seed after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, to be an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant before you and your seed after you in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. He that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in your house or bought with money uh, from any stranger which is not your seed. And it goes on and on. Uh, verse, well, verse 14, the uncircumcised man child whose flesh is not cut off that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So, how important was circumcision to an Israelite? Well, very important. It was the mark. In fact, in the days of Abraham, you didn't make a covenant. You cut a covenant. There could be no covenant without the shedding of blood. And when two chieftains would, would make a covenant, they would cut an animal in half they would split it open and cut one half on lay one half on one side one half on the other and all the blood in the middle and they walked through the blood as part of the ceremony to show their covenant uh, one with another and so it was called cutting a covenant because this animal was cut in half without the cutting without the shedding of blood there could be no covenant in the ancient Middle East so Circumcision was the sign of this covenant being cut between God and the descendants of Abraham. So I believe all the Arabs who are descendants of Abraham still practice this uh, to this day as a, as a sign of this covenant. And of course, modern Jews practice this as well. And we could go off in that tangent, but I'd rather not at this at this time. So we see that circumcision was incredibly important. This was the delineating feature in the synagogues, which remember were not buildings, they were just assemblies of the people of God, is what the word meant. And there were very few buildings outside of Palestine where synagogues met, other than just private homes for two or three hundred years after Jesus. The men of Israel uh, sat together. The women were segregated, and then probably in the back were the God-fearing Gentiles who just came to listen to the Scriptures being read. And what separated a God-fearing Gentile from a proselyte who was adopted into Israel was circumcision. Circumcision was a deterrent for many foreign males to become full members of of the nation of Israel. And so it was the, it was a you know a defining thing. So it was incredibly important. Now, interestingly enough, these Pharisees who were true believers 
actually had some reason to believe that these Gentiles would need to be circumcised. And if we go to Isaiah 52, verse 1, here is uh, the prophet Isaiah speaking of the recreation of Jerusalem in the last days. And here's what he says in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for from this time forward there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Another prophecy of what would happen in Israel's last days. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the last days, or in the latter end of days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. So this is yet another one of many, many promises that in Israel's last days, that Israel would be recreated, and that all the nations would flow into God's house. And many people shall go and say, Come, and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And we could go on there, but do you see how a good student of Hebrew prophecy could believe from these two passages that when God wrapped up his plan that the nations would need to be circumcised and that the law of Moses would go forth out of physical Jerusalem? Yes. Okay, so, yes, do we, do we see that the, there is no question amongst the believers as to the timing or the fact of God restoring Israel and completing all of the promises made through the Hebrew prophets at this time? During a time In other of, words, of, of the Acts. Exactly. The you, you see... There, there is a difference of opinion, but it's not over, is the kingdom here? Uh, are these the last days? Is Jesus the promised Messiah who will bring about the recreation of Israel? Do you see, none of those are the questions at stake. It's not the fact of the restoration of Israel. It is a dispute about the nature of of the restoration of Israel that is causing this dissension amongst the believers. Does that, does that make any sense? Yes, yeah, it does. Uh, and, and again, we, we find ourselves today, if we read the plain sense of the scriptures, we find ourselves at odds with virtually every establishment of religion in the country today. You see what I'm saying? In other words, how many churches, uh, groups of believers, anything, acknowledge that God fulfilled all of his promises to Old Testament Israel completely in the days of Christ and the apostles? 
Here in Acts 15, then, we see a disputation within the community of believers, particularly amongst the Judean believers, as to whether in Israel's last days, when the much-promised ingathering of the Gentiles, which was to accompany God's miraculous restoration of Israel, and the glory days of the United Kingdom of David would be restored to Israel, a descendant of David would be put back on Israel's throne, and all of the twelve tribes who had been scattered to the four corners of the earth would be ingathered, and the Gentiles would be brought in at the same time. They all agreed that this was happening then. They just were reading these scriptures that we just read, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 52, where it said basically in the last days that no uncircumcised would enter into Israel and that the law would go out from Jerusalem. And so the fact that the time was right for the restoration, that it was happening, and that Gentiles were being invited into the restored kingdom of Israel was not in question. They all agreed. The significance for us today is that most Christians, most churches today, are still waiting for those things to happen. And yet, as we can see in the book of Acts, it was very clear that they were happening then in those days. Recall Acts 3, Peter on the Temple Mount telling the crowd assembled that all of the prophets from Samuel and on, as many as have spoken, spoke of these days, not 2013, not 3,000, but the days of Christ and the apostles. Those were the days in which God's restoration of Israel took place. And so that, that has great significance to us today to understand this time frame and to see in this disputation in Acts chapter 15 that there was no doubt about it amongst the believers. They simply had difference of opinion as to the manner in which the Gentiles would be welcomed into the restored kingdom of Israel. So we'll have more to say about this as we continue to examine chapter 15. It's a very important stopping place for us here uh, a little past halfway through the book because it has such great significance for not only us, but the, the peoples of the Middle East today, world affairs, parents, grandparents, anyone with young people who could potentially be sent as cannon fodder to the Middle East to help God to bring about his purpose since he's apparently not able to do it himself, etc., etc., ad nauseum. All of these false readings of the Bible that are that causing people to die and be maimed for life and little children to be blown to bits by weapons of mass destruction, etc. So, anyway, I hope you find this as interesting as I have, and I really look forward to our time to uh, continue this. All right, well, thanks, Mark. That was a good introduction to Chapter 15. We'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of 
Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.